Parkside, thank you. I'm so glad to be back. Some people didn't even know we were gone. That hurt a little. <laughs> anyway, well, Clint just told you that Eugene, my husband, and I have been away for the past two months on an epic RV trip across the USA and Canada. And on our trip, we visited a number of churches on the way. And we went to one that had smoke machines. And oh, my goodness, it was all crazy and uh, flashy and everything. We went to another that was straight out of 1974. Music and everything. It was just like, oh my goodness, I'm in a time warp. It was so bizarre. But no matter where we went, we got to worship God with our brothers and sisters. And that's a beautiful reality. You know, you can go anywhere on the planet Go to church, and you have brothers and sisters there. It's an amazing feeling. It's wonderful. But you know what? Every church we visited made me love Parkside more. <laughs> I love Parkside. This is my church family, and it's so good to be back. All right, now, just in case you were thinking that we were simply indulging ourselves on this trip, I want to let you know that that's not 100% true. Yes, we had some great times, but it's not 100% true. Eugene and I actually don't believe that Christians retire. What? Yeah. Uh, yes, our secular work falls away, but that just leaves more time for the Lord's assignments. That's what we really believe. And uh, so our trip was part sabbatical, okay? Uh, getting away from it all, a deep, prolonged rest from the busyness of ministry and life. In fact, this morning I got up and I was sort of overwhelmed by, oh, I got a birthday party to go to this afternoon and we're going down to Bellingham tomorrow to help my daughter move. And I thought, you know, it hadn't dawned on me that the last two months I've had no designs on my time, none except we had to get to where we were going, right? So, wow, that's a change. But it was a rest. It was a real rest. It was also a spiritual reboot for us. Eugene and I did the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course while we were away, and as well as we read three very uh, spiritually uplifting books. I, he would drive, I would read, and we'd discuss things and pray about stuff and whatnot. So I would actually say that my love for the Lord intensified while we were away, and my passion for ministry was absolutely reignited. Also, this trip was a marriage intensive, and I mean intensive. <laughs> we spent 66 days together, and I mean together. We we're in a 27-foot motorhome, and we were in each other's presence 24-7, 24-7, uh, except for five hours in Alabama. I went shopping with his sister. Five hours. Other than that, 66 days face-to-face. <laughs> yeah, and I'm happy to report that we're still married uh, and that actually we're more in love now than we were before. It was wonderful for our marriage. So I have to say this trip changed me in a good way. And that's what Jesus does uh, for the Christian doesn't he? He changes us for the good. He radically transforms us when we become believers, and then he keeps changing us all through our Christian life. You might remember a few months ago when we were going through the book of Mark, 
Um, I spoke about a radical change that Matthew went through. He used to be Levi, the tax collector, and, and he went, when he encountered Jesus, he went through the most incredible change, radical change. He went from being a despised traitor to the Jewish people as a tax collector. I mean, he got rich from taking money from his own people. When he encountered Jesus, he was radically changed into a Jesus follower. In fact, he became one of Jesus' 12, the inner circle. Radical change. He left behind his, old, his whole life, his old life, and he began a whole new life. And I think many of us would say, yes, I know what that means. When I became a believer, I left behind my old life and I got a brand new life. Big time radical change. Who's in the mood for some big time radical change in your life? Yeah, right? A lot of us are. Well, listen up, because we are going to look at another radical life change in the Bible this morning. It's the Saul who turned into Paul. We're going to look at the Saul that turned into Paul. We're going to look at his conversion, his encounter with Jesus that totally changed everything about him. His name, his perspective, his lifestyle, everything. And we're going to glean some good stuff for ourselves in, from his testimony. So let's take, first take a look at Saul's before picture. The first we hear about him is after Stephen's great speech in the book of Acts in chapter 7. And now Stephen made this big speech in front of the people uh, and he was not pulling any punches. He was shooting from the hip. He was calling the Jews to account for rejecting the Holy Spirit, persecuting God's prophets, and for killing Jesus, the Son of God. Well, the Jews got so angry that it says in verse 57 and following, this is Acts 7, verse 57 and following, it says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at them. That always kind of tickles me. <laughs> like, I don't know, anyway. Um, anyway, and then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's who I'm talking about today. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. And here we are, Saul. Saul approved of his execution. That's the before picture. So there we meet Saul. He's hard-hearted, approving of the stoning of Stephen. And I presume that Saul heard the voice of Stephen as he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But the love, that absolutely supernatural divine love that Stephen showed in saying that, like doesn't make any human sense. You're being stoned to death to say, don't blame these guys, Lord. That is divine love. The love that Stephen exhibited did not soften Paul's hard heart. 
A little later, it says in chapter 9, verse 1, that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. <coughs> he was so full of hatred for the disciples that he went to the high priest to get letters to the synagogues in Damascus, allowing him to take captive any followers of the way and to take them to be tried in the Jewish court in Jerusalem, which in turn would have led to their execution as well. Saul was a man who was so certain of his righteousness so certain that he had it all figured out, so certain that he was fully qualified to judge others, he was the epitome of self-righteousness under the guise of being zealous for God. He was arrogant. He was proud. His passion for what he figured was God's will led him to murder. When something supposedly good turns into horrible evil, man, that's one of Satan's favorite schemes. Here's how Paul himself described his before picture. He was speaking before the Jews in Jerusalem. It says in uh, Acts 22, 3 and following, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, I don't know how to say that, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, I persecuted this way, and that's what they called the early church, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So Saul thought he had a lot to be proud of. He studied under the highest Jewish teacher, Gamaliel. <laughs> now, not just everybody could be this guy's student. No, ho! you had to be the top of the top student to study under Gamaliel. <laughs> and Paul became a Pharisee. These were men who prided themselves on 100% obedience to the law. Very proud of themselves. Later, when Paul was addressing King Agrippa, he said in Acts 26, 9 and following, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Saul was so caught up in his hatred that he admits trying to make the Christians blaspheme. It wasn't enough that he thought the Christians were wrong about Jesus. He actually tried to make them blaspheme so that they could be unjustly indicted. His passion had turned into poison. That was the Saul before he encountered Jesus. There's a saying that goes like this. 
every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. The Apostle Paul certainly had a past, didn't he? And Saul the sinner certainly had a future. So let's read about his conversion, and that's in Acts 9, 1 to 19. Acts 9, 1 to 19. There you go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went along his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, having heard the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate or drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, uh, and Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. What a story. There was Paul going on his self-righteous journey to Damascus, and Jesus showed up and changed everything, everything. Saul's conversion was 100% Jesus-initiated. He wasn't looking. He wasn't a, you know, a seeker. <laughs> no, he had it all sewn up. And yet, Jesus initiated his conversion. He was instantly changed from Saul, the, the, the persecutor, to Paul, the proclaimer of Jesus Christ. 
Paul's after picture? Let's take a look. Paul became a fearless evangelist, going all over Europe and Asia, preaching mainly to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews, preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. His life was threatened so many times. He was in prison time and again. And yet he was so instrumental in the building of the church. He planted so many churches and then he mentored and discipled them. He wrote most of the New Testament. Paul's after picture was a polar opposite of his before picture. So what can we learn? about Paul's conversion. I think there are some really useful details that you and I can use in our own spiritual lives. First of all, Saul was made blind. It's a picture of his spiritual blindness. His world became totally dark, which is a picture of how dark and evil Saul's life had become. And he was greatly humbled. If ever there was a man who needed to be humbled, it was Saul. Here you have a powerful man, full of authority, get driven by spiritual pride and arrogance, being totally humbled, made so helpless in his blindness that he had to be led by the hand, totally at the mercy of others. What a blow to this man's ego. Can you imagine being this man of authority and all of a sudden you're brought down to like helplessness? Uh, but I think humility is a huge component in coming to faith. I think you might agree. You cannot think you know it all and stand before God. <laughs> who really does know it all. Conversion happens when we admit that we're not God. We don't have it all together. We are not in control. And we ask Jesus to be our Lord, to be our guide, to be our master. I think Paul would have loved the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, because he'd be able to sing with conviction, I once was blind, but now I see. And he would have meant it. He quite literally experienced the darkness he was living in and came into the light of God, the love of Jesus. So this happens at conversion. It also happens throughout our walk with Jesus. That nasty ego inside rises daily like bread dough, don't you think? It, it pretty much has to be our daily confession, Lord, forgive my pride. Lord, forgive my pride. I don't see the full picture of what's going on. I don't know other people's motives. I don't have all the facts. Only you do, Lord. That has to be our daily confession. Forgive my pride. You know, there are a lot of Christians who are so zealous about politics or other social issues that it turns to evil. It turns to hatred. It turns to evil. Their passion for what they believe is right and godly turns into hatred toward the people who think differently. Think of the Christians who kill abortion doctors. That's what I'm talking about. 
Now, if your convictions have hardened your hearts against people who think differently than you, it's time to spend time with Jesus. We're going to look at what happens when we do that. When Paul when, Paul, when Saul, sorry, encountered Jesus, he asked two very important questions. The first is perhaps the most important. He asked, who are you, Lord? Now, he didn't know who he was talking to at the time when he was, you know, struck. Um, but he did know that this was a supernatural happening, absolutely. And because it was a supernatural occurrence, uh, he addressed um, Jesus as Lord, not because he knew it was Jesus, but because he was probably terrified <laughs> of this, this thing. And he just wanted to give some respect to this person that was, that was there. He said, who are you? And I think it's very wise of us to ask Jesus as well, even on a regular basis. Who are you, Jesus? Our whole lives depend on who Jesus is and who we know him to be. You know, often I will read the Gospels just so that I get the answer to that question again. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? So I want to see his lifestyle. I want to see what he said. I want to see his reactions. I want to know Jesus. Reading the Gospels, well, the whole New Testament, really, but and actually the whole Bible. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's something we need to continually ask. Uh, one of the key characteristics of Jesus is exemplified in Jesus' first words to Saul. He said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And when he gave his testimony to King Agrippa, Paul adds something else that Jesus said to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus added, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's take a look at how Jesus was introducing himself. He said, Saul, Saul. The repetition of his name shows care and emotion. There's a few other times in the New Testament when Jesus uses this expression. You remember the story of Mary and Martha, when Martha had her shirt in a knot because Mary wasn't helping out with the work of hospitality, remember? And Jesus said to Martha, 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 you're worried and upset about so many things. You don't hear ridicule or condemnation in what Jesus said to Martha. You hear compassion. He's saying, Martha, you don't have to get so worked up. I care about you. That's what he was saying. Again, Jesus repeats himself when he said in Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus wasn't ignoring the sins of the people. He names them. And yet, what was his attitude? It was not condemnation. It was total love and compassion. How often I would have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That's tender compassion. 
So likewise, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Kick against the goads? What does that mean? Okay, a goad or an ox goad is a very sharp stick or a stick with a very sharp end on it that farmers would use to get their oxen to go a certain way, you know. Um, and so if an ox was particularly stubborn and did not want to do what the farmer wanted him to do, he might kick against that goad. And all he would do is puncture his own leg and hurt himself. The goad would, would really seriously hurt him as he kicked against it. So Jesus is saying to Saul, why are you hurting yourself by going against me? Why are you hurting yourself? Saul, quit fighting me for your own well-being. It's an expression of love supernatural love, divine love, because Saul had been killing Jesus' followers. He'd been killing them. How could Jesus have compassion on him? It doesn't even make sense. Just like it didn't make any sense when Jesus was hanging on the cross, having been tortured and mocked, hung, hung on the cross, bleeding and under excruciating pain and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That doesn't make sense. That is the incredible, divine love of Jesus. And so that's how Jesus introduced himself to Saul. When he said, Saul, Saul, he's saying, Saul, I love you. I care about you. I am not focused on what you did. Do you get that? Somebody here might need to hear that today. God is not necessarily focused on what you did. He cares about you. That stuff you did just hurt yourself. And he cares about you. I'm not focused on what you did. I love you. I want the best for you. Like I said, somebody here might need to hear that. Maybe you straight away from God. Maybe you've just been going through the motions with this Christianity thing and maybe you're just not feeling it, you know? Maybe you're actively involved in a habitual sin. Many of us are. Maybe it's a sinful relationship or maybe it's a private sin that only you know about. And you don't come to God because you feel so guilty you're not sure you can or even want to give up what you're up to, right? I can totally relate, totally. When I was doing the Hearing God course, uh, I asked the Lord one time what I needed to do about my weight problem. Come on, God, what do I need to do? And I felt him say very clearly to me, don't eat between meals. Not one bite. <laughs> Have I obeyed him in that ever since? No. I mean, man, if I can get through one day, that's a triumph. Do I feel lousy when I disobey? Absolutely. And often I'll come to the Lord and say, oh, God, I disobeyed you. You are God. You told me what to do, and I didn't do it. I screwed up. But what would Jesus say to me? 
you loser, you know? No, you know what he would say to me? Catherine, Catherine, why are you kicking against the goats? You're only hurting yourself. Why are you hurting yourself? Compassion, love. When Eugene and I were doing the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course on our RV trip, twice a day we were to spend two minutes in the presence of God, just two minutes, uh, not talking to him. This was not like blah, 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 talking to God, no. Two minutes just experiencing his presence. When I first started, I would simply say, it just came to me to say it, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. And that's how I focused on God. And about for the first three weeks or so of this, I would always sense this feeling of an arm around me. Like I could actually sort of sense a weight on my shoulders. And it felt like God with his arm around me, a very comforting weight. <laughs> I felt so loved as I just came into his presence. I felt loved. You know, I think that so many of our problems in our lives, they'd all be solved if we could really grasp, if we could really grasp how much God loves us. If we could really get it experientially, know that you know, if we could really get that the God of the universe, the creator, truly loved us with a deep compassion and care, our insecurities would vanish. Anxiety would disappear. God loves me. God cares for me. God's got my back. God is with me. It's all going to turn out. God is working in my life. What else could possibly matter? What somebody else thinks of you? No. <laughs> God loves you. So if you suffer from insecurity or anxiety, that might be a little exercise for you. Go to God on a daily basis, maybe two or three times a day if you can, and just sit with him. Don't spend that time yattering. Just sit with him. Okay? Focus on him. If there's a phrase that comes to mind, like for me it was Heavenly Father, but it might be something else. It might be Abba Father. That's a very tender, childlike Daddy Father. You know, I don't know. If a phrase comes to your mind, just repeat it. Just repeat it in his presence. It helps you to focus on God. And see if you don't experience the life-changing reality of God's incredible, unconditional love for you. Now, when Paul was addressing the Jews in Jerusalem and was giving his testimony, he said something in that testimony that isn't mentioned in the other accounts. He said... Um, that he asked Jesus who he was, but then he also asked, what shall I do, Lord? And that is a vital part of our faith story. Once we encounter Jesus, once we call him our Lord and our God, it follows that we would then ask what, what he wants us to do. 
if he's our Lord, if he's our master, like our boss, we ought to be asking him that all the time. And we ought to do what he tells us to do. It's kind of scary to ask God what he wants us to do. It can be kind of scary. But remember, God loves you. He has you in mind. Okay? So you can trust that. It's what we got to do. You know, in the book of James, it says that faith without works is dead. Meaning that faith without action isn't really faith at all. It's lip service. And the works that we need to be doing are what Jesus tells us to do. In his word, the Bible. In our quiet moments with him. Sometimes it's like just an impression where you think God is saying, I think he wants me to go talk to her. I think he wants me to join this or whatever. Sometimes it's very clearly stated, not one bite. Okay, very clear. <laughs> Sometimes it's very clearly stated in black and white in the pages of your Bible. Love your neighbor. You know, there are things that are very clearly stated in there that will be highlighted to you as you do your Bible reading. You'll think, ah, I see what the Lord wants me to do and I'm going to do it. True discipleship means that we are doing the things of God, obeying his directions. If you came to Jesus for what's in it for you, and believe me, there's a lot in it for you. So a lot of us might have come for that reason. Uh, but if you came, became a believer so that you could have a better life, after a while, your faith is going to grow stagnant. And that's because you're only living half of the Christian life. And it, it doesn't stand alone. Okay, If you're just there for what Jesus can do for you, that faith is not going to last. You'll soon grow blasé about your eternal hope. You'll lose your love for the Lord. Trust me, it'll happen. Your faith stays alive by giving it away, by serving the Lord, by obeying Jesus. That's what keeps your faith on fire. If you are a Christian and there is no difference between your lifestyle and your non-Christian neighbors, then you might want to ask the Lord what Saul asked. What shall I do? There's so many ways to serve him. Might be here at church or in your neighborhood or workplace or it might even be in a foreign country. But don't just decide what you're going to do. Don't just go off and decide what you're going to do for Jesus. No. Ask him. Ask the Lord. He knows you better than you know yourself. I promise you, you do that and you obey him, your faith going to come on fire as you seek the Lord's direction and then obey it. That's how it works. Worship team, you can come on up now as we wrap up. There you are. There you are. Uh, life as a Jesus follower is extremely exciting. He is constantly growing us, constantly changing us. And the thing to remember is that we do this together as a body. If you are looking for some radical change that pertains to giving up a deep hurt in your life or a nasty habit 
that you're trying to break, or just a hang-up. Man, I got this hang-up. I'd love to invite you to celebrate recovery on Wednesday nights. Uh, we meet at 7 o'clock Wednesday nights here at the church. And Celebrate Recovery is where we are all actively seeking Jesus and how he wants to change us. And he is changing us. We celebrate that every month. We see people month after month having changed. Very exciting. So come along if that's something that you're looking for. But for now, we're going we're gonna to focus on Jesus as we take communion. I'll ask the ushers if you'd like to serve the elements. So I thought we could do communion just a little bit differently today. As we focus on Jesus' sacrifice for us, and that's what it's intended for, he wants us to remember what? He doesn't want us to feel guilty that he went through his crucifixion. He wants us to know how much he loves us. Do you understand that? That was an act of divine love, a personal act of divine love for each one of us. And that's what he wants us to think about, okay, with communion. So um, once you have received the elements, go ahead. Once you have received the juice and the cracker, I want to ask you, thank you. I want to ask you to close your eyes and just try repeating a phrase in your head that helps you to focus on Jesus. Okay, so you might say something like, the blood of Christ, the love of Christ. The blood of Jesus, the love of Jesus. You might want to do that just to focus on his sacrifice. Or you might say something like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whatever breath prayer you want to repeat, let's all do that together. Let's all focus on Jesus right now for a little bit. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us, love that changes us. Father God, I pray that each one of us would experience your love more and more and more and more. As we sit in your presence, we focus on you. As we read your word, God, may we experience it, Lord. We know it. We know Jesus loves us, but pray, I pray, God, that every person here would experience the love of Jesus. And when we mess up, that we'll hear, Catherine, Catherine, why are you hurting yourself? Rather than condemnation or anything else, God, I pray that we would experience your love and your compassion for us. May we leave this place today, God, mindful of who you are and seeking what you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen.